begin reading in Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 1. It says, Therefore let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to open contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. I remember a scene in a movie that I saw some time ago. It was one of those Night at the Museum movies. I believe it's the second one. It was the Battle at the Smithsonian. And there's kind of a funny scene in there where this guy that was an ancient pharaoh of Egypt, common Ra, is brought back to life. And the main character, the museum guard, is in a little bit of a confrontation with this common Ra. And it's kind of a comical thing. And common Ra is telling him not to cross this line. He keeps making a line with his hand. He's saying, don't cross this line. I'm going to kill you if you cross this line. So he's on penalty of death and the guard at the museum doesn't sweat it too bad because he knows he has something that Common Ra wants. And So there's a little bit of a standoff there. It, just, uh, it was kind of a funny scene in the movie. Well, the reason I bring that up is because that's really what we have as we come to Hebrews chapter 6 here this morning. We have a, we have a line in the sand. We have a, a line that God says you can't, you can't cross. You can't cross this line and recover from this. Unlike the movie, this is not comedy. Uh, this, is, this is not a funny incident. In fact, it is, it is a fatal incident. It's a serious incident that God describes for us within this passage. But you know what? We have a tendency to be fascinated with lines, right? If somebody tells us not to cross a line, there's just something in us that kind of wells up that makes us want to cross that line. It's kind of like the speed limit. What is it that is in me? I know the speed limit is 63, right? It has to be because that's where I set my cruise control all the time. You know, I know it's not high enough that anybody cares. That's not enough to stop and give me a ticket. But there's a line drawn there at 60. It used to be 58. But now it's, you know, now it's 63. And so, but whatever, whatever the speed limit is, no matter how high it is, we're just always, aren't we? If you say don't cross the line, we're toes on the line. We're just kind of right there. Well, in this passage, it's a little bit more emphatic of a line that God has given us not to cross. He's saying, look, don't cross, don't cross, do not cross this line. But as I said, unlike the movie, it's, it's, it's not, it's not a comical moment. As he's warning these people. Now, what is the line that they're not to cross? It's a line of what we call apostasy. In fact, the word found in the passage for falling away is the word that we get the word apostasy from. It is to hold to something and then to fall away from this truth. And that's what God is telling these people. Now, if you remember from our earlier parts in the study, these are Hebrew Christians or people that were Jewish that had been looking forward to the Messiah. And, and when they found out about him, they put their faith and trust in him as their Messiah. They received him as their Savior. But because of that, then the other Jewish people that did not receive him began persecuting them. They began throwing some of them in prison. They confiscated some of their properties. They suffered public humiliation. They had a whole list of things in chapter 10 that you can find that they were suffering. Now, because of that, 
because of that, they're being kind of pressured and tempted to pull back. Pull back from their relationship with Christ. Go back to the temple sacrifices that are still being offered. And go back to the old way and the persecution will go away. It's into that kind of a situation that the author of Hebrews is writing to these people and he's saying, look, if you do that, that is a mistake you can't come back from. God has drawn us a line in the sand. If you get that close to knowing Christ, if you get this close to this relationship with God and then turn and walk away from it, that is that is something to which there is no repentance left. God is just saying, look, this is a line you can't cross. Sometimes maybe we go through some pressures as well. You're not going to get your property confiscated because of your belief in Christ. Probably not going to lose your job, although I've heard of some cases where that might have been the case for something like that. You might experience some ridicule, publicly so. You might experience pressure from your family. These people were experiencing pressures from their family that had not trusted Christ as their Savior. So you might experience some pressures from different ways. But you know what? Turning your back on Christ is really not an option. In fact, the whole book of Hebrews is really telling these people, look, there's no way to, to go without Christ and without judgment at the same time. If we turn our back on the salvation from that judgment, then we're left with nothing left but the severe judgment of God. And it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Now, as we look through this passage, there's three truths that we need to recognize as we go through this passage. And as I mentioned before, this is a difficult passage to understand. But I'm hoping it's a little bit clearer for you by the time we're done here this morning. The first truth that we need to recognize as we're dealing with this subject and the idea of people turning and falling away from Christ is that the only real safety zone is found in maturity in Jesus Christ. It's through growing into maturity in our relationship with Him that we are truly safe from apostasy. You know, our relationship with God is either moving forward or falling back. It's kind of like with a garden, right? The only way to keep a good garden is to keep pulling the weeds. You stop pulling the weeds and your garden starts to go downhill in a hurry. Well, that's what it's like in our walk with Christ as well. We need to keep moving ahead. The only real safe spot is to be found in maturity. Now, we started off into this a little bit last week. Remember, he wrote to these people and he's expressing a little frustration. He's explaining to them who Jesus Christ is in our life as He's provided for our forgiveness of sin and our access to God. And then when we get to the very end of chapter 5, He says, I wanted to go on and explain to you this subject a little bit deeper, but I'm hindered. And the reason that I'm hindered is that even though you've been trusting Christ long enough that you should be a teacher by now, you still have a need of somebody to come along and give you the ABCs of the Christian life. You have not learned, you've not grown to the extent that you should have by this time. And that's what he's encouraging them to do, is stop looking at wavering and going back. Stop being stuck at the point of salvation. You've believed in Jesus Christ, trust Him, move on and grow in your relationship with Him now. And we looked at that last week. Well, he continues from there in verse 1 of chapter 6, and he says, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ. Now, the word is a severe word. It is a word that describes divorce even, so it is kind of a a severing. But he's not saying, look, you're going to leave the foundational elements of of the doctrine of Christ never to revisit them again, or that you're going to put those aside and be done with them in your life. What he's saying is, look, it's time for us to move on. Let's no longer, and use the word, lay the foundation. Let's don't lay the foundation of repentance again. Let's not have to lay down the the foundation for faith, lay down the foundation of eternal judgment, 
lay down the foundation of the resurrection. He said we should have the foundation secure by now. And so as we talked about last week, it's kind of like a little child. You're working on the ABCs, working on the alphabet, but there comes a time when you stop working on the alphabet. Does it mean they stop using the alphabet? Absolutely not. But there should come a time where you're not working on it anymore. That's what he's saying here. We need to grow up in our relationship with Christ. In order to do that, just like a child has to come to a point where they stop surviving on milk alone and start eating meat and eating more substance, he says it's the same thing in your Christian life. You've got to start eating meat. You've got to start being able to handle deeper subjects or even the same subjects at a deeper level. You've got to be able to add more depth to your understanding of Christ and what He's doing in your life. And so maturity really is the only safety zone. That's what He's pushing them toward. Now, it is a little bit confusing. When you look at some of the foundational elements that He's talking about, that cause theologians to question, is He talking to saved people that are just stumbling in their maturity? Or is He talking to unsaved people People that have made a profession of faith, but they're not really genuine in their belief. Now, because of the list of the basic elements that he talks about here, some people think that, well, he must be talking about people that were still clinging to the Old Testament, the old sacrificial system, the old priesthood. They had not completely, they would not genuinely embraced Christ. And they're looking at going back to that. And so they're unbelievers. Well, the reason they think that is because... Those two middle ones, right? There's, there's three pairs. He talks about repentance from dead works and faith toward God. Those are together. And then the next ones, those are where the confusion sets in. Because he talks about these washings. It's a similar to the word we have for baptism, but it's not the exact word. And it's usually translated washings. Well, washings, as best as we can tell, probably referring to some Old Testament rituals, some Old Testament washings that they would participate in. Then when you get up to the last two elements, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment, well, these are elements that are spoken of in the Old Testament a little bit, but they're really expounded on in the New Testament. The the repentance and faith, those are both Old Testament and New Testament principles. The last ones are Old Testament hinted at, New Testament in-depth principles. And the two in the middle seem to be more, probably more exclusively, unless he's referring to baptism, which I don't think he is, probably more of the Old Testament concepts that he's dealing with in there. But you know what? I think it makes sense. From the rest of the passage around it, it very clearly he is writing to people who he thinks are genuine in their faith, but with their hesitation, with their starting to draw back, or at least be tempted in that direction, he recognizes that they may not all be sincere. Coming up to this passage, he's been talking about Christ as our high priest. He's just starting to compare him to the Old Testament priesthood and specifically Melchizedek. So what he's doing is he's already comparing Jesus Christ to Old Testament things. So it makes sense for him to have these idea of these washings that are in place there also. Because he's saying, look, you need to have a New Testament perspective on Old Testament occurrences. And how Christ fulfills those things. He's focusing on believers who've made a profession of faith. He's recognizing that some of them may not be genuine in their faith, may not be sincere, and so some may fall away. It's the same answer for both of them. If they find themselves not to be genuine, and that's why they're kind of clinging to that Old Testament, they need to embrace the reality of Christ and come into the New Testament, come into this new covenant. If they are genuinely saved, 
but they are struggling in their faith. They need to go on to maturity. It's the same thing. They need, to, they need to be committed to Jesus Christ. They need to be focused. They need for their faith to be real. They need to walk with Him. And so it's, you know, it's the same thing for us this morning. If you're in here this morning and you've never put your faith in Christ in a genuine way, or maybe you, maybe you did make a profession of faith at one time, but you question your salvation, you're saying, you know what, my life doesn't really back up what I said that I do. Uh, my life doesn't really show my trust in Christ. Then you need to invite Christ into your life and you need to start living for Him. If you have already done that, and you say, you know what, I'm confident in my salvation. I know I've been, I've been sincere. I know I'm genuine. But you know what, I'm stumbling a little bit. Well, then it's just a matter of getting back on track. It's about leaving those basic principles, not having to go back to those basic principles, but move on in your relationship with Jesus Christ. Put some of that stuff in your past and move on into maturity. That's really the only place where we are safe from falling back and falling away from Jesus Christ. So the first truth that we need to recognize is that safety is found in maturity. The second proof that we need to recognize, and it's detrimental if we don't, is the sovereignty of God in this process. Because notice what he says at the end of verse 3. He's saying you need to leave those elementary doctrines of Christ. So they are teachings about Christ. And we're going to go on. But then he says in verse 3, And this we will do if God permits. In other words, ultimately it's up to God. Now, why does he say, if God permits? Why is it, doesn't God want us to grow deeper in our relationship with Him? Yes, He does. Doesn't God want people to not fall away from Him? Yes, He does. So what is this, if God permits thing? Well, he goes on from there, and he says in verse 4, For it is impossible, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to open contempt. Well, why wouldn't God permit this to happen? That's what the next verses are for. It says, because it is impossible. If someone has tasted... All of these different things, the, the, the Spirit of God, the Word of God, the power of the age to come, of the kingdom to come. If someone has tasted all of these things and then turns away from Christ, turns his back on Christ, it is impossible to renew that person again to repentance. Now, what is that talking about? This is where it gets difficult. Is that talking about someone that's genuinely saved? Some people say yes. It's talking about someone that's genuinely saved because of the way they're described. They've tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of the Word of God, and the powers of the age to come. So as somebody that has participated in all these things, the the Word of God, the powers of the age to come, the Holy Spirit, all these things, that looks like someone that is genuinely trusted in Christ. Now, if you were to base it completely on the definition of the words used here and their use in other places, I've got to admit that the argument for that is compelling. But I don't think that's the point that he's making here. You know, context is always the key. And I don't think that's what he's saying here in this passage, and we'll justify it as we go, as we go along. But he's saying, look, if somebody does get to this point where all these experiences identify them, and then they pull back, 
They turn their back on Christ. He says there's no way for them to come back. There's no other path back to repentance. Why? Because if they did, what, would they, what, what are they doing? They're crucifying to themselves the Son of God. In other words, for these people that have so, seen so clearly the truth of who Jesus is, for them to now turn around and say He is not the Savior, they're doing the same thing the religious leaders did in Jesus' day when they said crucify Him. They're crucifying Him unto themselves. And they're holding Christ up for a public mockery, public shame, saying He is not the Christ. And so apparently there's a line that God draws, and I don't know where it is. That's not anything that one of us can do for the other. In fact, sometimes people come to me and they say, you know what, I'm concerned that I've committed an unforgivable sin. And I say, well, does it bother you? They say, yes. I say, well, then you haven't committed it. Because if you've committed it, then you would not in your heart be longing to turn and to be forgiven of it. Because that longing within you is God's tugging on your heart. And so if you're concerned about it, don't worry. You haven't, for, you, haven't, you haven't committed it, but you better get it dealt with. None of us can look at somebody else and say, oh, that, person, that person's crossed the line. They won't be forgiven. But what God is telling us is that He does draw the line somewhere. We, we saw it in the, in the ministry of Jesus Christ as well. If you look through the book of Matthew, Jesus, when He gets up to chapter 10, I think it is, 10 or 11, He starts criticizing Cities where he's been performing miracles. And he says to those cities, he says, Woe to you. He pronounces judgment. He says, Woe to you, Bethsaida, Chorazin. Woe to these cities where he had done most of his miracles. The reason is, he said, If the miracles that I did within you had been done within Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented in ashes. And so the, the, the people that saw the, the most proof about who Christ is face the severest judgment when they reject Him. Then shortly after that, you get to Matthew chapter 12, and the religious leaders of Jesus' day, Jesus casts out a demon, and the religious leaders say, you know what, He's not from God. And people say, well, how did He cast out a demon? And they say, He cast out the demon by the power of the prince of the demons, Beelzebub. He cast out a demon by the power of Satan. So Jesus is from Satan. So after seeing all of Jesus' miracles or the ones they'd done right there, and hearing his teaching, they said, you know what, he's not from God. This isn't the power of God. This is the power of the devil. And what does Jesus say? He says, that's a blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Blasphemy against the Son of Man can be forgiven. Blasphemy against man can be forgiven. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And then he starts to teach them in parables. We mentioned that briefly last week. The disciples asked him, why are you doing this? He said, because to you, the parable will reveal the truth. But to them who've committed the unforgivable sin, it hides it. To them it is not given to know. But those people were alive on this earth, but they were beyond forgiveness. They had crossed the line into where the forgiveness was no longer available to them at that point. I think that's what he's saying in Hebrews. In Hebrews he says there are some people in this world that have crossed a line. There is a line that you can cross in your life that it is impossible to get back from. And it's not just difficult. Some people have said, well, maybe it just means difficult. No. It's the same word that's used in other places in the book of Hebrews where it says it's impossible for God to lie. It's not difficult for God to lie. It's impossible for God to lie. The word means impossible. And he's saying it's impossible to get back to the point of repentance. 
And so you see the sovereignty of God is involved here. The author is writing to these people and he's saying, look, we want to go deeper. I want to lead you deeper in your relationship with God. But you know what we're going to need? It's only going to happen if God permits. In other words, it's only going to happen if you haven't already crossed the line and turned your back on Christ and walked away from him. Because if you've done that, then it's impossible to bring you back. The sovereignty of God. Now, we see that in other places. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 29 is another warning passage we're going to get to eventually. It says, How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? And so it just recognizes that, you know what, when we trample underfoot the Son of God, we turn our back on Christ after all that he did for us. It's a serious matter. It's deserving of eternal punishment. The last truth that we need to recognize as we look in this passage is the security in salvation. The interpretations of this passage basically fall into three different interpretations. Is this passage referring to genuine believers who then lose their salvation? Or is it talking about people that have made a profession of faith, they're close to being a believer, but they never come to a sincere faith? But being that close, they then turn and walk away. Or is it the last one is that it's a hypothetical situation? In other words, he just says, if you could fall away, which you cannot, then there's no, there would be no return from that. And that might be an argument for some people that believe that you can lose your salvation. Is that if you can lose your salvation and you use this passage as a proof of that, then it also proves you can never regain it. I would argue that this passage is referring to people that he thinks they're genuine in their faith, But there are undoubtedly some among them who are not, and that's what it's referring to. Those people who have been influenced by the Holy Spirit, influenced by the Word of God, seen the miracles um, that that the apostles were able to perform. Remember in in chapter 2 and verse 4, they said that that God himself was testifying through the miracles and the signs that they were able to see. And so they get that close, but then turn and walk away from it so they were never genuinely saved. In verse 7, he says, For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed. It is in his end, it's to be burned. Now notice, notice what he's saying. The land, which would be what? In this case, it would be the people. The people, the land upon which the rain falls. What would be the rain? The rain would be those things found earlier in the passage. Verses 4 and 5. The Holy Spirit. The Word of God, the power of the age to come, that is how God influences us. So he's saying you've got all these people and the the influences of God falling on all these people. And then two things are going to happen. Some people, the rain is going to fall on them and they're going to produce fruit. And they're going to be blessed by God. Other people are going to have the same influences come upon them, but they're going to produce thorns and thistles. So he sees very clearly pointing out that you're going to have some people are going to, under those influences, are going to be influenced and be saved and grow in their relationship with Christ. Other people are going to be under the same influences and they're not going to be affected. They're going to continue with thorns and thistles. And so they're not going to come to genuine salvation. It's just like just that first concept of light, of being enlightened. The word being enlightened there means to like to shed light on something through teaching. Like if I was going to say, let me just shed some light on that, which I'm trying to do with this passage and probably failing miserably. The prophecy about Jesus pointed out that concept back in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. And then it's quoted in the book of Matthew. 
In Matthew chapter 4, verse 16, it says, The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Okay, so they've been enlightened, you could say. That's talking about the region of Galilee. Did all the region of Galilee put their faith in Jesus Christ? No. Most of them didn't. So were they enlightened? Well, yes. They were enlightened because the influence of God was there. It shone on them. It lighted the darkness. But they were not impacted by it. They would not be influenced. And that's the same. You could do that with each one of these different concepts that he mentions in here. They got to taste the goodness of the Word of God, the power of the ages to come, but they did not embrace the power of the Word of God in the ages to come and the Holy Spirit. And so these are people that were so close to salvation, but chose instead to turn and to walk away. We see it in other places as well. In verse 9, it says, Though we speak this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. So in other words, he's saying, look, some people can walk away and they'll never come back. He's saying, you know what, we're convinced that that's not the deal with you. We're confident that you are genuinely saved. Back in chapter 3, verse 12, notice it says, Take care, my brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Remember, he's been comparing them to Old Testament Israel. All of Israel got delivered out of Egypt by Moses. Almost none of that generation got to go into the promised land, got to enter God's rest. And the case that he makes is why? It was because of their evil, unbelieving heart. Also, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 14, there are these if-then statements. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. He's not saying, if you hold firm, then you will come to share in Christ. He's saying, you have already come to share in Christ. That is only true if you hold firm. In other words, if you have genuinely come to share in Christ, you will hold firm. It's the nature of faith. If the nature of faith isn't to remain faithful, I don't know what it can be. And also he pointed that out in chapter 3, verse 6. He said, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in his hope. Same thing. He said, we're part of God's house if we hold fast. But, but we're already part of God's house. It's not a hang on and then you'll be part of God's house. It's you already are, but if you are, you'll hold fast. That's the evidence that it produces in our life. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 11 says, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Hebrews chapter 4 verses 1 and 2, he says, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For the good news came to us, just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Same point being made. Remember, the whole context leading up to this point is he's comparing these believers. He's saying, look at Old Testament Israel. They came out of Egypt with Moses, but they fell away. They didn't go to the promised land. He says, he's saying, telling them, it's the same with you. you. You profess to have come out of your sin. You've been delivered by Jesus Christ. If you fall back, it's showing the same unbelief in you that was in them. And so he's pointing out that your your salvation is not genuine. Your faith is not genuine if you can fall away, if you can turn back. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 14 says, For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. I love that. 
It says, by Jesus' one-time offering. It says, notice, He has perfected. If you're trusting in Jesus Christ, you're, you're perfected in Him. It says, He has perfected. And how long does His perfection last? For all time. But who does it apply to? Those of us who are being sanctified. So we're still in the process of being sanctified, but He has perfected us for all time. And then lastly, Hebrews 10.39 says, But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and, and preserve their souls. He says, just as they were part of Israel, but never made it to the promised land, you might be part of the church, but you're not making it into the eternal life because of unbelief. You're in danger of crossing a line that you can't get back from. You're in danger of making that permanent, sealing your own fate. And he's begging these people, don't cross this line. 